The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week, as every week, we just work so hard to make sure that you have the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. Only this week, we're going to work our fingers to the bone to make sure that you have the information you need to plan to pay less taxes legally over the course of the next few years. It's our 2022 tax updates. And my guest today is John Heyer, who is an attorney, accountant, and real estate investor who somehow was able to tolerate working for Fortune 500 companies for the first seven years of his real estate career, but who most of you know for the past 17 years has been working almost exclusively with real estate investors and business people in his own firm, and also that he is an expert in both taxes and also retirement accounts type of Topics. So uh, this is a really good day to ask questions about anything you want to know about taxes, tax changes, that scary stuff that happened last summer with uh, Congress looking to re-regulate IRAs in a new and different way. Uh, whatever tax questions you have, I won't be answering them after today because John's the expert. The number here in the studio to call in with questions is 877-772-9658. You can also send them to askvina at gmail.com. Joining us from his home in Puerto Rico, probably with a glass of rum in one hand and a cigar in the other, is John Heyer. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I dispense with the cigar for the call. You don't like to hear me cough, so I have the cigar before the call. I won't comment as to the distilled product. All right. So we, we have a mental picture now. That's good. Um, there's a lot to say about about stuff that you've been researching. Uh, you're like the only person I know that when Congress puts a new bill on the table that is somehow going to involve asset protection or taxes or retirement plans, you actually read it from end to end before it's even passed, which is something Congress doesn't do. So that's very admirable. <laughs> and I know, I know you had some things at the top of your agenda to make sure people understood. So let's, let's get through those, man. Let's start with the naughty bad part. Um, the bill that was proposed initially last year 
it's still out there. It hasn't gone anywhere because the, the, there's not a majority willing to vote for it. So for the moment, there are holdouts. But the original bill, which had a lot of truly awful things in it for taxes, has been greatly watered down. So even if the current version were to pass at some point, it's much less bad. I don't say it's better. I don't think it crosses the threshold of being good, but it's considerably less bad. Let me go over briefly the parts that I think would affect most of your listeners, because there's a whole ton of stuff in there that it might have an indirect effect. Maybe it's good for the economy or something, but most of them won't have to deal with directly. So here's what's still in there. First of all, a massive increase in the IRS budget, with, for which I have a very mixed feelings. Um, their service has been low. They've been tasked with a lot. And so it's fair to say that they could use the resources. Now, the question is, how would they use them? But there's another side to that. Uh, they would greatly increase audits. And I don't think that the tax revenue that they think is there is there. In other words, I think tax lawyers like myself would do really well. I think a lot of small businesses would become very stressed by having an audit or paying someone like me. So, so I have very mixed feelings on that. It would largely depend on how they use it, given past precedent. I'm not terribly optimistic if that were to pass. Um, for investors who make over 400 grand, which pretty much puts you in the top 1%, that's roughly the top 1% number, maybe with inflation, it's 500 grand per year, they would have an extra 3.8% tax on their business income, the Obamacare tax that presently applies to Capital gains and interest for people who make 250 or more would apply if you make 400 or more in your business. So that would knock the bracket up a few points. They are looking, and I've got good news in a different way on this in a second, on the salt cap, the state and local tax. So tax geek talk, we call it salt to make it shorter. Right now, you're limited to deducting 10000 in taxes, and that impacts a lot of people. Um, they're looking to raise that cap. Right now, the, the proposed number is to sixty grand, which would allow a lot of people to take the state and local tax deduction. They would be, and here's a piece of advice, they still have in the bill, they want to restrict two things. Uh, the backdoor Roth IRA, which what is that? Well, if you make too much, whatever that number is, you're not allowed to contribute directly to a Roth IRA. But there's an indirect way. You put money into a traditional after-tax IRA, and then you immediately convert it to a Roth IRA. That was supposed to be effective January 1 of this year. It hasn't passed. So for those of you who depend on the backdoor Roth IRA, I would do it now. Now, could they make it retroactive and you have to pull the money back out? Yeah. But oftentimes what they do is they date it as of the date of the bill, meaning if you get under, in under the wire before the wire, then you get to keep it. Likewise, so-called mega Roth 401k contributions. There are ways to... Make sure you contribute the max to 401ks, which is anywhere from 58000 to 65000 per 401k, and you can often do it with more than one 401k. Without getting into details, because that would take an hour, there's a technique for contributing large amounts to a 401k nicknamed Megaroth, and they sought to do away with that. Uh, so I would, I would make that contribution before year's end. The other two items take effect if they were to pass in 2029, and 2031, one would be a cap on aggregate retirement accounts, uh, not including defined benefit plans, of $10 million. So I guess if we have to worry about that, assuming that $10 million is worth something in 2029, that's probably not a big thing on people's radar, at least for now. And last but not least, on the naughty things to think about that are in that proposed legislation, 
Uh, if you are high income, about 450 grand a year, you would be ineligible to convert from traditional to Roth at all starting in 2031. And that's it. I mean, it's a much, much, much shorter list than what was initially proposed and a lot less pernicious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, those those income numbers you're naming, $400,000, $450,000, which seem really high right now. When I, looked at, when I look at what the government is reporting as inflation, so double it and get the real inflation, um, when I look at, you know, the oil prices going up $5 a barrel in, a week, that sort of thing. I'm thinking that by the time these things take effect, that's actually just going to make you like upper middle class. And we've had that. There are other instances where the so-called bracket creep, you know, something that seemed like a low number at the time later on was not so low. Even though they index some of this for inflation, I think we would all agree that what they're saying inflation is and what inflation actually is are two very different things. And I would say that's especially true in real estate. So yeah, I think bracket creep is a real problem and these provisions don't really address that. Mm -hmm. Well, you did a great job back in the summertime when this thing really looked like it was going to go to a vote and pass within a couple of weeks. And, you know, thank God for gridlock. uh, It ended up not doing so uh, of kind of rallying people from all over the country uh, just to, just to call their congressmen and tell their stories and, uh, you know, especially call the congressman on the side of the aisle that was proposing this. And um, I'm I'm quite sure that the uh, a lot of what a lot of the changes that you are now seeing came from a lot of elected officials hearing from a lot of normal human beings going, you know, you do away with my ability to invest in an IRA and you've basically taken away my retirement plan because I'm self-employed. I don't have anything else. Yeah, the numbers matter. As, as and, and this quote is attributed variously to Stalin or Mao or whomever. They have very large armies. Quantity has a quality mm-hmm. all of its own. And a lot of comparatively normal, smallish investor types were calling, writing, faxing. It made a difference. People took action. They allowed themselves, made themselves heard. And it made a difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if that uh, comes back up again and looks like it's actually going to go to a vote, we will definitely uh, keep talking to people here on Real Life Real Estate about what they can do to, to, I don't know, get things like inflation indexes built into the built into the law. So, uh, yeah, we really appreciate that effort. We need to take a quick break. I want to encourage folks who have questions for John to either call us while we're still live on the air here for about the next uh, 40 minutes at 877-772-9658, 877-772-9658, or send them to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talking today to attorney John Heyer about what might be coming up in 2022 tax-wise. And, uh, you know, nobody's got a crystal ball, but John is probably the most uh, educated person in the country about that, who's, who's not actually sitting in Congress writing the laws, maybe. And you can ask questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Before I completely space on this again, if you are 
still in the mode of, you know, trying to figure out what the best things to do in 2022 are the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati has its monthly online main meeting uh, tomorrow night. And it's Zoom, so I don't care where you're listening from. You can attend this. Uh, the main meeting is a panel of uh, folks who are pretty experienced and very active in various strategies, uh, creative finance, rehabbing Airbnbs, um, wholesaling, you know, all the, all the different strategies. And they are going to talk about what they see coming in their what they see going on right now and what they see coming in their business and how they are changing their business. So this is like an experience-based panel who's going to share what their plans are. And that might be something you would want to hear if you are trying to make plans as well. Uh, the early meeting is a workshop for beginners about how to find property values. And it's a hands-on workshop. You should be at your computer, if possible, following along doing the same thing because that's how you learn. You can get a... A uh, Zoom link at CincinnatiRia.com. That's C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-R-E-I-A.com. And again, no reason to not attend. It's online, ladies and gentlemen. All right, John, we did actually already get a an IRA question. This is from Denise, who is in the Carolinas based on her business name. North Carolina. And she says, I'm 57 years old and have a traditional IRA. I have used most of it in a self-directed investment, but will be selling the investment in the next month. Should I use this opportunity to convert it to a Roth? Is it actually worth it at this time of my life? I would like to continue to use the money to invest in self-directed investments. Of course, the lawyer answer is it depends. I need to know more about numbers, bracket, what she's going to invest in. Odds are high that the answer is yes. Let me give you a few reasons. Uh, with inflation, traditional IRAs become less and less valuable. In other words, you get a deduction for putting money in, but it's taxed when it comes out. So it's not really tax-free. It's tax-deferred compared to a Roth. Now, the price to pay for a Roth is when you convert traditional to Roth, you pay a price to do that. Uh, you Basically, the conversion amount is added to your return. You pay tax on it. Depending on what bracket you're in, that's how much the conversion costs you. So there has to be an analysis, and I'm going to give a really powerful trick to help put our thumb or maybe our hand or half our body on the scale. The, the first thing to do is analyze the numbers. You want to run or have your accountant run what's called an internal rate of return calculation. You want them to figure out how much tax would you pay to convert. And you don't have to do it all at once necessarily. You could spread it out if need be. But you want them to figure out how much tax you're going to pay. And then based on your estimates, and it's just estimates, how much money do I think I'm going to make down the road? How long am I going to make it for? When will I start withdrawing? The, the taxes you don't pay when you start withdrawing are the return on your investment. Your investment is the tax you pay to convert. The return on investment, the taxes you don't pay later. Now, the more that account grows, obviously, the better you are at investing, the higher the internal rate of return, and the lower your bracket initially the more profitable it is to do it. Now, even when I was in the highest bracket, when I lived in the States versus in Puerto Rico, which has a different tax regime and I pay a lot less, I converted because my internal rate of return was so high. I'm going to give you a very valuable tip on how to make this a lot less painful. When you, can, when you have a traditional IRA, and let's say it just invests in a normal syndication, a real estate syndication maybe, where somebody's developing and then they're going to rent it out for a while and sell it. 
the day after you invest under tax law, let's say you invest 100000 of IRA cash, if you were to convert that, $100,000 gets added to your tax return, and you pay whatever tax that implies. Well, here's a way to pay a lot less. The day after you invest that hundred grand, and I'm just making the number up, into the syndication, tax law normally gives you a discount of anywhere from 10 to 60%. Let's say you get a 40% discount, which would be pretty common. Instead of converting at 100000 the day after you invest that 100000 in that private investment or that syndication, you may be able to convert it $60,000 instead of a hundred. That's more than a 40% discount because we'll be discounting the highest bracket income. So that's a way to take a lot of the pain away. But with inflation, if you're a good investor, if you're, if you're doing pretty well with your investments and think you'll continue to do so, you really want to think about the conversion. As always, it depends on the precise numbers. Okay. So there's your answer. And um, let me just say in encouragement over your ancient 57-year-old age that my 84-year-old mother just opened up a Roth IRA because she believes that she can make the real estate investments that she's been making for 50 years and grow that. And, you know, my my family lives to be 100. (laughs) So... You know, nice to do that tax-free, right? Rather than make them outside that tax-free uh, thing. So, yeah, don't worry. You're 57-year-old. You could live to be another. You could live another 40 years. That, that would make a big difference in your return, quote-unquote. Uh, sort of a, f- a related follow-up question from Beth in Maryland. She says, I've been intending to convert my traditional IRA into a Roth IRA I read somewhere that I can pay the taxes on that not from the IRA. Is that true? And is there, in fact, an advantage to it? Yeah, that's correct. Actually, since the conversion, so let's say you convert a hundred grand, a hundred grand gets added to your ten forty. So, by definition, the taxes are being paid from outside the IRA. And I have to echo your point. People are living a lot longer, and especially if one doesn't need the IRA money in the near future and it has time to compound there are a lot of very legal ways to rapidly grow iras not least among them leveraging uh if we read about peter Thiel, and we don't have to be quite that brilliant but the idea is there are ways legitimate ways to grow them very quickly so Mm -hmm. yeah beth um you pay the money from outside the roth so you don't deplete the ira when you incur that tax Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm All right. So uh, we just got a question at about 1031 exchanges. So before I ask that, do you see anything on the horizon for 1031 exchanges? Are they, 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 they seem to come up on the chopping block about every five years, but it never really happens. They've been on the chopping block since the 1930s. I mean, every once in a while, they just propose it. And then rightly, the industry goes nuts because it would lock up a lot of capital and so, so far, no one's been able to gather the political support to do it. Now, one little thing to look at. Um, recently, regs came out providing a clearer and somewhat more expanded definition of what is or is not real estate for 1031 purposes. So just a little, I don't want to go into detail because that's the kind of stuff that'll, you know, people are driving, they'll start to nod off. That wouldn't be good. <laughs> but I want you to be aware that. 1031, the definition of real estate. I'll give you an example of something that's not intuitively real estate, but for 1031 is. 
a 30-year or greater mortgage. If the mortgage has a life of 30 years or more, for 1031 purposes, that's real estate. So if you have one of those mortgages, you could exchange it into a rental or vice versa, just to give you an idea of some of the flexibility oh. that those regulations build in. You just made my day. That's what I can't. That's why I'm here. <laughs> I didn't realize that that had changed. So, so I'm sorry. I've got to go down that trail a little ways. Does the does the mortgage still have to have 30 years remaining on it, or could it be I carried back a 30 year loan two years ago? Can I exchange that for real estate? 30 years remaining. Uh, so you have some incentive to extend it. Oh, uh, would you like lower payments? Oh, well, we can arrange that. Mm-hmm. So I just I just make it 30 years when I find the thing I want to exchange it into. That's right. And there aren't there aren't a ton of borrowers who'd be like, well, no, I want to keep making a higher payment. Hey, was... Especially given where inflation's headed. I think people are quite willing to extend loans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, Hannah's uh, question actually might fit what in, right into what you just said. Uh, she says, I'm planning on selling a rental property in 22 that will have capital gains and I'm considering doing a 1031 exchange to defer those. Would investment in a large multifamily as part of a syndication be considered a like-kind exchange? Could I buy a note with the proceeds of the sale of that rental property as a like-kind exchange? Okay, I'll answer the first question. Is investing in a syndication when coming out of a piece of, let's say, a rental, like-kind exchange qualified? Almost never. And the reason is most syndications are structured as LLCs. And even though the LLC holds real estate, you're not allowed to do a 1031 from real estate into an LLC, even if the LLC holds real estate. Now, there are these sort of hybrid things called uh, TICS, tenant in common interest, which is sort of like co-ownership by a whole bunch of people. You can 1031 into that. It's a great tax move. What's the problem? Economically, TICS are notoriously bad. In other words, usually the rate of return and the liquidity are not really great. Now, if you happen to find the exception, a promoter who actually puts out a quality product with a good rate of return uh, or and liquidity, perhaps, you could exchange into a tenant in common interest, let's say you know, 1.35% of a massive apartment building. Something else to consider, they're not dead. Uh, we set up a lot of them at the end of last year. You can put capital gains, including depreciation recapture, into an opportunity zone fund The tax benefits are tremendous, but you do have to be willing to either build or rehab or have someone else build and do a lot of rehab in one of the opportunity zones. But tax-wise, if you fit that profile, not everybody does, but if you do, the tax benefits are off the charts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the last part of her question was, could she use the money that she got from the sale of the rental property to buy a note and have that be a like-kind exchange? Only if the note is a 30-year or greater mortgage. But yeah, if it's a 30-year or greater mortgage, she can exchange into a note, absolutely. You're making me want to go out and generate some 30-year mortgages to be targets for people who are doing a 1031 exchange. Yeah, there is a big market for people who make things that are easy to 1031 into, and because there's tax pressure, the way the 1031 rules work, you have a very short timeline to offer products that, hey, if whatever you're working on doesn't work, we've got a fallback that you might like. A lot of money made that way, and people will pay a premium for that to avoid paying the taxes. Excellent. It's time for another break. Talking today to John Heyer, who 
uh, is from taxreductionclass.com and is a mini year, like real estate investor, consultant, attorney type person. Like he just knows a lot about your taxes. If you're listening to this show, he knows a lot about your taxes. And we are discussing what might be coming up over the next few years and also taking questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Talking today to John Heyer from taxreductionclass.com. And we are talking about 2022 taxes, answering questions, all of that sort of thing. Um, John, the questions are starting to flood in here. So what I'm going to do in many of these cases is first ask you, is there anything new that we just should all know about? And then ask you the question. So, uh, Adrian asked a question about self-directed HSA accounts. Anything new there? Well, yeah, actually sort of nothing directly new about self-directed HSA accounts directly, indirectly. There was a massive tax court case, probably the number one tax court case of the year for for small business and real estate investors. Here's the short version. Somebody had a checkbook LLC, which is an LLC that an IRA owns 100% of. They were the manager of the LLC. And the idea is they get control of the IRA's assets. Now, some people have abused that control, and I think this is one of those cases. So they ended up falling for one of the schemes, and I've said this is a scheme for a while, uh, where the they went and set up a checkbook LLC, their IRA put money in the LLC, they managed it, they went and bought IRA gold and put the IRA gold in the basement. Oops. And the tax court shot that down 50 ways to Sunday, rightly so. The problem is that the language of the decision was extremely broad. What they said was, is you cannot have what tax people call constructive receipt of an asset. That if you have the ability to get your hands on it, even if you don't get your hands on it, that that's going to be a problem. Now, proper titling fixes a lot of that. The problem with gold is there wasn't really any title to it, and it was just sitting in the basement. I think this does have implications for crypto cold storage that people hold on behalf of their IRA directly and personally. I think it's going to drive people more to exchanges for crypto when it comes to IRA investing or having a truly independent manager who holds the crypto cold storage. But I think it's going to reverberate across the board and make people a lot more conservative about checkbook LLCs. For example, with rentals, if you're the manager and you have access to the bank account, do you have constructive receipt of the cash in the bank account even though you never actually touched it? Do you have the ability to take the cash out of the bank, theoretically, and do whatever you want with it? That, I think, will remain to be determined. It's a risk, and I think that's going to cause a lot of changes in the checkbook LLC world. That's related to health savings accounts because it's a great way to self-direct, and a lot of health savings accounts also use checkbook LLCs or checkbook trusts. You can get the same answer with a trust that's 100% owned by the IRA. So that was a big, big deal, and it created an awful lot of gray. That's a bad one. Before the end of the call, Give me a minute and I'll give you a good one. Back to you. 
All right. So Adrian's question is, my husband and I have health savings accounts and made contributions that would be allowed for a full year of insurance coverage in 2021. Unfortunately, our health insurance got canceled and we had no coverage for the month of December. Therefore, we believe we made an excess contribution for one twelfth of each of us, roughly three seventy nine twenty. She says roughly and then gives me a, a number to the penny. Uh, since we are both over the age of 55, what is the penalty for the excess contribution if we do not try and withdraw it? When is the deadline for the withdrawal? And is the withdrawal our only option? So a couple of options. The penalty is pretty light. The penalty is 6% of the excess contribution per year until it's corrected. Now, if you withdraw it, the question becomes, do you pay tax on the withdrawal since the money is not being used for health expenses? That gets a little complicated. One other way to fix it is if you think that you're going to have qualifying insurance in the future, you, you, you apply the excess contribution to what you could have contributed. So let's just say you got a new HSA-compliant health care plan, and let's just say you could contribute six grand to it. And let's just make up a number. You over-contributed 1000 All right, well, next year you only contribute 5000 and you say we, quote-unquote, made up for the excess contribution by doing that. Now, if you correct the problem before April 15th, then you should not have to pay the excess contribution tax at all. But if you do have to pay it, it's really small. It's only 6% per year, but you have to file that extra form. And the form is a 5329 it goes with your 1040, and the 6% is paid by you personally. So it's not a horrible outcome, but the money just stays there, and you pay 6% per year on it, assuming you make more than that. Correcting it shouldn't be a problem, especially if, I mean, if there's between withdrawing the money and just applying the excess contribution to future contributions, applying it to future contributions is the much, much cleaner result. Okay. Uh, yes, and, and, and Adrian? I did the calculation, and your tax on the excess contribution, your penalty of the excess contribution is $22.21 with a little spare change. But it sounds like there's a better way to do that, which is, it sounds like she's already got her policy back, John. It sounds like it lapsed in December, but she's already back. So it sounds like she can just contribute less this year and she'll be okay. All right. Uh, question from Sirenage. Uh, she says, I am working on getting my first real estate investment property, but that hasn't happened yet. However, I have purchased real estate educational courses that I invested in and learned from. Can I make that a business expense to offset my taxes? Not until you actually have a trader business. So all the money you expend exploring how to become a real estate investor you add that up, you keep the receipts, you keep a spreadsheet. When you finally have a trader business, and that's a term of art, there are hundreds of cases that define it. Certainly when you do your first deal, whether you buy your first rental or you actually succeed with a wholesale or a flip, depending on what it is you're looking to do, you've got a trader business. You arguably could have a trader business, arguably, if you're out making heavy offers and you can document the activity. You know, I made 50 offers, I talk to this many realtors, I'm out there actively looking for a property, you may have a trader business at that point. That's a little more aggressive and a little more great. But to deduct, these are called startup costs. So the term you want to Google is taxation, startup costs, 
and there are about 3 billion articles on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if she, let's say she spent the money in 2021 and she does a deal in 2022, can she backwards, go backwards and say, I bought these in 2021, but I'm deducting them in 22? Yeah, so the 2021 expenses would become startup costs in 2022. Mm-hmm. So she could look back at the costs, but couldn't deduct them until 2022. And the way it works is the first 5000 in startup costs are immediately deductible. The rest of it, you take little by little, specifically whatever's left. Let's say you had 12000 in startup costs. You deduct 5000 What do you do with the seven grand? Divide by 15 that's how much you get to take per year. So it gets spread out sort of like depreciation. Mm-hmm. Okay. A uh, question from Janine. I'm in North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I recently moved from near D.C. Thank you for your hard work over the summer, getting the word out. I was ready to go to D.C. with you. <laughs> um, she says, my question is, I have ESOP distributions from a previous job starting this year for the next five years. Can I roll over 7000 of it each year into my Roth IRA? I'll be 53 in June. Are the distribution payments already taxed or would they be taxed before going into the IRA? It's going to depend on the plan documents. You may be able to roll the ESOP distribution. You can probably roll part of the plan itself into a traditional IRA. Then you have to decide if you're going to convert to Roth. But in terms of distributions, in other words, you're receiving actual payments from the SOP, you clearly cannot roll those. And I'm a little tentative on that. I admittedly do not do much with ESOPs. Um, It's just not something I do a lot with. What I would say is this. Here's usually the quick answer that's much cheaper than calling me. Talk to the plan administrator and ask them, what can I roll and when can I roll it? And before rolling into an IRA, consider setting up, if you have a trader business, so there's that word again, if you have a trader business, you qualify to set up a 401k, if you don't have any employees anywhere in your structure, you qualify for a solo 401k, which is really nice because they're cheap and simple. The 401k is the best retirement account. It's better than an IRA. Again, for reasons I won't go into given the time we have, I vastly, 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 for small businesses in particular, and especially self-directed accounts, prefer 401ks. So if you are able to roll the balance of the plan, and it'll be something traditional, because ESOPs are by nature traditional, I would strive mightily to qualify for a traditional 401k to roll it into, specifically a self-directed solo K. And then you can decide if you want to convert to Roth. But that plan is just so superior to an IRA, it's not funny. Our next question is sort of ironic because it's from Angela who says she got on to listen to the program a little bit late. And then about 10 minutes later, she, quote, got dropped. I think her app, her WMKB app on her phone went out or something. Uh, and she says, I feel like I'm missing some important information. Is the topic recorded? I hope so. And ironically, she can't hear me saying this answer. <laughs> but for everybody else who that might happen to, uh, yes, the every show is recorded and then put up as a podcast on realliferealestate.com. The email is realliferealestate.com, just like the name of the show, not the email. The website is realliferealestate.com. And there are 
hundreds of archive shows there on the program so or on the website so uh, if you just want to listen to Vina 24 hours a day seven days a week you could probably do that for a number of weeks by going to realliferalestate.com we need to take another quick break if you have any final questions uh, just go ahead and send them in to askvina at gmail.com we'll be back right after this Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talking today to John Heyer from TaxReductionClass.com, answering questions mostly because they are still flooding into the email box. Um, Got one from Dorica that I can't, like, directly answer. But, Dorica, I will say if you go to TaxReductionClass.com, uh, that will probably answer your question. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Wow. All right. Just a, a bunch of praise for John. See, we try to not stroke John's ego because, you know, the island of Puerto Rico is just only so big. But Sue says, thanks for all you do for us. I was at your boot camp, I think, in 2020 in Puerto Rico and went home and set up my solo 401k. Don't you love it when people actually get back to you and tell you that they did what you told them to do? It, it's always it such makes a- me happy. It means she's giving less to the government and keeping some of what's hers. And there's a moral component to what I do. I really believe in that mission. So good. I'm so happy to hear it. Yeah. And, and it's so rare that people will like take a class and then come back to you and say, yeah, I did it. You know, you mostly just they go away and you don't know what happened. Um, Hez from Vancouver, Washington says, I want to add my praise and compliments to those of the other listeners. Great information and updates on a very pertinent topic. Um, Dave has a question about, uh, the opportunity zones that you brought up. Oh, by the way, I had heard about a year ago that there was a movement in Congress to get rid of those because somehow people investing in traditionally like low income depressed neighborhoods by massively rehabbing or building new houses was only benefiting the rich. Did that, did that ever go anywhere? Yeah, there are a lot of people saying that, and at present, those voices have the influence of the Flat Earth Society. <laughs> yeah, that, just, that was one of those things that I just went, are are you listening to what you're saying? Y- yes, rich people are putting their money into building and massively rehabbing houses in areas where there has been no government investment and no private investment in many cases for decades. And yes, they're getting a tax break for that, but are are you're getting the part about there's new housing there, right? It just doesn't make sense to be upset about that. Um, Dave has a question. He says, I'm selling a portfolio of 10 units in a 1031. Can you invest in opportunity, uh, opportunity zone projects? What are the advantages? I don't, John, do you actually have to do a 1031 into an opportunity zone project or you can just take the money and go invest it in an opportunity zone project? So unlike a 1031, first of all, you don't have to escrow the money. You have normally 180 days to invest the like amount of cash equal to the gain. Let's just make up numbers. You have a gain of 150 grand. You have 180 days from generating that gain to take a like amount of money. It doesn't matter where it came from. It doesn't have to be the same exact money and put it into an opportunity zone fund. Now, the important thing is to get the opportunity zone benefits, you have to invest in a fund, which is really just a somewhat fancy LLC. And we walk people through the rules and so forth. 
I, it's it, it's tragic when I see someone. I get emails all the time. I bought a property in an opportunity zone, so tell me what tax benefits I get. And I'm like, well, none. You didn't buy them on opportunity zone funds. What are the benefits? You get a deferral, and it's only a deferral. So unlike a 1031, which you can defer until death and ultimately escape, with the opportunity zone, the deferral is only till December 31st of 2026, and then the gains get added to your return. But one of our major fears went away. What are the capital gains rates going to be in 2026? Well, the odds of them going up at this point are very, very, very low. There's not even a proposal right now out there to do that. That's the small benefit. That's nice. I like deferral, pay later. Okay, good. The big benefit is this. Once the fund turns 10, whatever properties it sells, sell tax-free, including no depreciation, recapture. Mm -hmm. So if you are good at, you put money in there, this is what my clients normally do with these. They put money in, they buy any, there's all sorts of sizes. I got people buying massive multi-units. I've got people buying single families. They do the requisite rehab, and that's a lot of rehab. Or they do a new build, and it qualifies. They rent it out. They refi it. Now they, assuming they did a good job on buying, they refi for considerably more than they invested. They go keep buying more. They they play the normal game, right? Mm -hmm. Fix it up, rent it out, refi, do it again, except with more money. You have until 2028 to start a deal. That's when the opportunity zones themselves go away. Once the fund, the fancy LLC, turns 10, it can sell the properties. It doesn't have to. It has a lot of time to do this, completely tax-free. You don't even have to give back the depreciation. That's an absurd benefit. They're mm -hmm. really encouraging people to build and rehab in these areas. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a societal good there, too. Question from David, uh, who says he is a longtime hire student from the early 2000s. Are there any risks in me being the trustee of my solo 401k? Oh, sure. If you're lousy with paperwork and you, you slip on something, absolutely there are risks. So know thyself, right? Some solo 401k companies offer support for those of you who are very good at deal making and not real good at paperwork. But if you're pretty good at following, learning and following rules and you're going to do it and actually follow up or you've got somebody, you know, be it a spouse or an employee or someone who can help you with that so that you comply, it's really not that hard. But I've seen people who are just no good with paperwork. They're really good at making deals. I, I don't have much envy in my life, but there are a few people. I look at the deals they make, and I have a little envy there. But they are no good at admin. Those people should not be the trustees of their own 401ks. They need to find someone who's good at that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mary Jo from Indiana says, are there any tax changes coming up that will affect non-grantor trusts? Not for the moment, other than a possible increase in the bracket. There is a surtax in there that was said to apply only to people making $10 million or more or trusts that make 60000 or more. So there is a surtax. I think it was about 3%, if I remember right. That was the big change. There were a lot of other proposed changes to basically harm non-grantor trusts. And for the moment... They're not in the proposed legislation because both the estate planning industry and the charitable industry, because a lot of these trusts, the charitable remainder trusts benefit charity, both of those industries went nuts and had their voices heard. So for the moment, there's nothing proposed. 
Can I say one good thing that, that people need to know about? It'll take me a minute, and it's really important. Absolutely. For those of you who are limited because of the state and local taxes, let's say you pay more than 10000 in state and local taxes, but you only get to deduct 10000 there is a workaround in 20 states, and it's spreading very quickly. The states are adopting it. What happens is you're not allowed to deduct personal taxes on your Schedule A of your Form 1040 over 10 grand. So what the states are doing is a workaround. They're saying if you have an S corporation or you have a partnership or you have a multi-member LLC, which if you have a spouse, you can make sure your LLCs are multi-member, you can pay the same tax at the business level through the S corp or the LLC or the partnership, get a full deduction federally and get a full credit at the state level. In other words, if I pay taxes on 10 grand of income through my LLC, I get whatever, let's, let's say that results in two grand in taxes. I get a $2,000 tax credit on my personal state return. So what they're doing is they're shifting where you pay the tax from your personal pocketbook to your business pocketbook. And the IRS has approved this. So it is for those of you that have significant income that you pay taxes on from pass-through entities. This is a serious workaround. 20 states have passed it. More are in process. You do have to talk to a local person who knows what they're doing. For example, California law, as we would predict in California, is inferior and not very helpful because California. The one in Massachusetts and New York from everything I've heard and seen, are extremely well-written and achieve their desired purpose. That is so overlooked. Some of these laws have been around for more than a year, and the local CPAs are not up on it. You have to challenge your CPA. North Carolina just passed it, but the legislation has been sitting out there for a little bit. So you want to talk to your local CPA and make sure that they've looked at the legislation. I've had this simple suggestion of please look at this. Please have your local CPA analyze it and see if the local statute is well written and it helps or hurts you we have saved so many people so much by allowing them to deduct the taxes they're paying Mm -hmm. that is it that is a huge deal especially for this audience since most of them have llcs or possibly s corporations and uh yeah you need to find out if you live in one of those states because that i remember how angry the states were when that limitation was passed and uh, I, I see why you're saying this i'm like that's awfully creative of states that's weird and then i realized it was because they were mad they, they got yeah they got, yeah they, got, were, got they creative were quite, they were they were quite upset especially places where property values and hence property taxes are super high mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah i remember all of my new jersey real estate investment friends almost had a heart attack when that, when that happened they were like oh my god do you know how much this is going to cost us so, uh, John, we are at the end of our time. Uh, appreciate you um, being here with us today, especially since you have a big seminar coming up this weekend that I know you are getting ready for, going to Atlanta, setting up all sorts of simulcast equipment. I know what that is like, so um, I'm sure it'll be great. Good luck with it. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me, and may everyone keep what they earn. Take care. <laughs> and don't forget the RIA of Cincinnati meeting tomorrow night online about predictions for 2022, com. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.